Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. Finishes up Esther, and you'll kind of see why. Okay, I'm not going to camper on these four verses, but we're going to summarize really Esther, especially if you're new and you've just dived in with us. We've gone through the book of Esther, but it ends this way. King Asherus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Asherus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. Why? And it gives the very next part of that verse. For he sought the welfare of his people... And he spoke peace to all his people. So he was a peacemaker. He was loved and beloved by his countrymen, the Jews, because he sought the welfare of them. But all people liked him because he engaged and spoke peace and desired peace. And just like it started, when it started, King Asherus gave this big old party and he let all the taxes go. And now at the end of the story, all those taxes, they're probably back times 10 because it says he imposed tax. And so his treasury has been depleted. He's now looking to resurp and kind of refill it. And the story, if you've read through Esther, you see God's handprint all over it. And yet it starts kind of how it ends. King Asherus is still in authority. There's no real shift in play, but you see God's hand move in people and the point towards we need a better savior. We need a better person and a better kingdom And though Mordecai served faithfully in his position, when you look at history, he only served there for about eight years. And then he's lost to history. We don't know, was was he replaced by someone, was someone else? How does King Asherus, how does his kingdom, how does his reign end? He gets old and dies, right? No, he's assassinated later on. A few years after, as Mordecai, eight years later after this, Mordecai steps down or is removed. Another person comes into play, and King Asherus is assassinated by somebody in his court. Just as Mordecai heard these people grumbling and were going and told the king, somebody else did, and someone took him out. And it seems like nothing changes. Nothing has happened. And yet, God is faithful, and God moved through this to teach, I think, Esther and Mordecai, but also his people, that he is faithful, that he is consistent. And the point of today's sermon really is this title, which is God allows his people to be tested. He let Esther be tested. He let Mordecai be tested. Would they rise up? Would they step out in faith? And so for you and I, the reality is that it's trials are part of life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Be of good cheer for I've overcome the world, but we're going to have trouble. Why? Because it's sin, evil. There is evil in this world. One commentator writes this, he goes, trials and temptations are both inevitable and God intends both to deepen our faith. Sometimes we face trials on the outside. Sometimes we face temptations on the inside and how we understand them and respond to them has everything to do with our faith. Esther gets put into a position of authority and power, hides her Jewishness. Everything's going great until it isn't and she's made aware 
Some of us, that's us. We're undercover Christians in our homes, in our jobs. Everything's going great until we hit a point where our integrity comes into question. Our faith comes into question. And it is, am I truly going to live out my faith or am I going to continue to live in comfort and keep hiding? And the reality is, as David Platt said, how we understand what we're facing and how we respond, you cannot control other people. As much as you would want to, especially you parents out there and being a parent, you want to control things, you really can't. Even when they're two and three, you really can't. They have a mind of their own. They have their own will. You do have control over how you respond in each and every situation. And when you realize that God allows us to be tested, it starts to change your mindset of how do I approach this? How do I engage this? So trials are the first point there is are part of God's design that Esther shows that trials are part of it. But God uses these trials and he used Esther really to bring about over 400 years prior that he said when Israel was leaving in the book of Exodus into the promised land and Joshua was at the helm, they're attacked by a certain group of people. And as they're attacked, the mortal enemies, and there's a prophecy given that God's going to take them out. Well, it takes a period of time, but God's timing is different than our timing. And when God uses King Saul, King Saul doesn't follow through, so it takes all the way to Esther's time for it to happen. And so don't think that you're outside of the wrong time. Sometimes we connect with a certain period of time. Like, I like the ancient history. I don't really want to live there, for the record, because you don't have electricity. You didn't have quite what we have luxury-wise, It would have, and it's different. So God has ordained the time that you live in right now for you to exist for such a time as this. As Esther said, as Mordecai said, maybe this is why you're here, Esther. This is why you are here and I am here in 2023 is to exist, to engage the world that we live in and we're prepared. As Jenny said, you've been equipped. But we have to realize that trials are part of God's design. And so if we keep with that, if you hold your finger, you can keep it there. But we're going to jump into the New Testament, jump to James, which is one of my favorite books. We did a short series on this. But this is how we know trials are kind of commonplace. That if you're a man or woman of faith, you know Jesus, you trust in him, that you're going to face things. It says, James, chapter 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. So quick context, because context matters. James is a servant. If you were to read a different translation, you go older, the NASB, or the King James, it would say a slave of God. So he's, he's kind of identifying with, I'm not just a servant, though servant is more uh, easier for us to comprehend today, but a slave of God. I mean, his identity is wrapped up in him and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to the 12 tribes in dispersion. So the, the Jews, after Esther, they had started to come back to the promised land. There's a period of history before the Romans come on the scene where they kind of live in, this, in their area. Roman comes in, takes over as well, and then they disperse them everywhere. So he's writing to the early church. After Jesus has died and resurrected, James is a Jew. He's the half-brother of Jesus. In some of the, when you read through the New Testament and the Gospels, James mocks Jesus. He's one of the brothers who does this. Doesn't say which ones, but I'm sure he was one of them. Because if you're really this, go ahead and do this. Go. And he becomes a believer. He becomes one of the main pillars of the early church in Jerusalem. But most of the early church was Jewish. I'm a Gentile, meaning I'm non-Jewish. It was mostly Jewish because Jesus was a Jew. He died and resurrected, and he said, go into all the lands. It now was not exclusively to the Jews, the faith, that you came and became Jewish. It was to all peoples to meld and be grafted in. But the early church was primarily Jewish. 
So he's writing to the early church who were mostly in synagogues, who were Jewish in nature, to the 12 tribes who were scattered all across the Roman Empire. But he's writing to those of the faith. Count it all joy, my brothers, he says in verse 2, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that when the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We have this phrase that we say, God won't give you more than you can bear, which is not true. It's nowhere in Scripture. What is in Scripture is no temptation has overcome you except what is common to man, meaning God won't tempt you beyond what you can bear, but he won't necessarily not allow you to be overwhelmed. Why? Because if you weren't overwhelmed, and I'm a doer by nature, and I have a high capacity for doing things, then if I don't need God, what's he there for? But when he gives me more than I can handle, who am I going to run to? Who am I going to trust in? Him. Because he is faithful. And sometimes he'll put things in. You'll go through things where you're like, I don't understand how I'm going to get through this. God says, I know. Not by your strength, you won't. But by mine and with me. So he won't tempt you into sin beyond what you can bear. But if your eyes are focused on him, then he provides a way of escape. The trick is keeping your eyes focused on him because you'll face temptation, yes, and you'll face trials. And James says here that trials are part of God's design because we're supposed to have joy. I don't know of any trial that you go through, the testing of your faith is always joyful, that you're like, yes, I'm going to go through this. This is going to hurt, and I'm going to love it. Very few people, I don't know of anybody actually who likes that, it's only after. It's can you sing his praises in the midst of the storm? There's an old song by Casting Crowns, I'll praise you in this storm. And it kind of alludes to this, that in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the rain, in the midst of whatever, I'll praise you amidst it because I know who you are and I know your character. So trials are part of God's design. The, the whole concept of this joy it's explaining is not this yes, it's to sing the joy in the midst of it. And it produces steadfastness, James says, that the testing of your faith of various kinds produces that. Well, what is steadfastness? The word means resolutely or dutifully firm or unwavering. Or a fancy word that most of us don't like is patience. Steadfastness is another word for patience. But it's a different patience than, say, you sit and wait your turn. So growing up, we would go to Giant Eagle, was a local grocery store, and you would be in line at the meat deli counter, and you'd pull those tickets, right? They have the 46, 51. We're serving, number this. And patience was, to me, I thought, you know, you pull your tab, and you wait quietly for your turn, and you go up, no, 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 that's not this patience. It is parts of that, but it's more than that. This word does not describe a passive waiting, but an active endurance. That as you're moving through the trial, you're patient with it, saying, I'm not going to rush this. I'm not going to force the round, the, this peg into a round, this wrong fit. I'm not going to force the end of this. I'm not going to force the easy way out. I'm going to endure, but I'm going to praise God in the midst of it, and I'm going to have the right attitude in the midst of it. And even though I'm pressed, I am not destroyed. And even though I walk through this and it's painful and it's hurtful, I'm going to grow through this and I'm going to sing God's praises through this. And that's the joy that James speaks of is count it all joy. One, it's a, it's a sign for you to know you're also a son or daughter. And we'll get to that point in a minute. But they're part of God's design. We're to rejoice and rejoice. 
that it produces this steadfastness, this patience. And someone who always comes to mind when I think of this, there was a, a lady at our old church, as Alicia mentioned, we were the big fish in a small pond up in Cortland, New York. And we had one of these greeters who would greet every week, every time. And she was in her 80s when I left. She's still kicking. Um, her name is Rita Lynch. And Rita is the sweetest lady you will ever meet. Now, she's got a cone of white hair. She's got a cane. And she has this smile and will always greet you, smile, wants a hug. And she actually, in the midst of COVID, figured out how to do Zoom. So this is 80-plus years old, figuring out Zoom on a tablet. So we did some training for her, and she led a small group. What you wouldn't know from seeing Rita Lynch greet every week, shake people's hands, give people hugs, and she's in chronic pain, severe pain, every week. But her attitude in the midst of that is not one of complaining and saying, oh, God, this, uh, woe is me. It's one of, how do I serve? And God is so good. And you and I didn't know for five or six years that she was in chronic pain until I worked with Lynn Seifer. And she goes, oh, did you know Rita's going, she's getting for her pain? I'm like, what pain? She goes, she's in chronic pain. But it's the attitude, it's the joy that she had in the midst of that, that she's going through trials, and it's not something that just goes away. There's a patient. And I think trials, being part of God's designs, they come across kind of in three ways as I view them, and this is kind of coming from me, so it's, there could be more. But one is our own actions, our choices and reaction cause our own trials. We are sometimes to blame. User error. My dad would always say, Nick, user error. I'm like, it's not my fault. Oh, Yes, it is. I didn't read the directions, which I, I'm notorious for not reading the directions until I can't figure it out or it's broken. And I'm like, oh, user error. Sometimes it's just that, that trials that we face are our own choosing, that whether we want to or not, sometimes it's by our choices that have led to something. Other times it's we reacted very poorly in a situation that have caused it. The other part is others' actions. Their choices and their reactions have nothing to do with you or me. But their choices, their actions have caused then you pain and you to go through turmoil. And the third is there's spiritual attack. The devil's not around every corner. In fact, Satan isn't omnipotent, meaning he doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He does have demons, yes, and we are in 2023. Our fight isn't against flesh and blood, as Ephesians says. It's against the principalities of darkness. But there are times that as you start to walk with Jesus, as you say, oh, I want to be a Jesus follower. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to live for him. I'm going to start doing things with integrity. We live in a dark world. It, there's evil out there. And so if you go into a very dark room, and if you aren't a Christian, you blend in very easily because you're just like everybody else. But the moment you go into a very dark room and you light a little itty-bitty candle, or my watch has that little green light at night, it becomes really bright. And so if we live in a very dark world and all of a sudden we start to believe in Jesus and life comes into us and we start to shine our light, as Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and give praise to your heavenly father. You can imagine that as you start to do the right things, that if you've been going the wrong way for a long time, as you start doing the right things, you've painted a nice big red target on you. Where Satan is like, no, that's the last thing I want. I'm here to steal and destroy and kill. And everyone's going along. All of a sudden, you lit up like a sparkler on the 4th of July, and it's like, oh, wait, that's who I'm going after. 
And so there's times where that is the case, where you're under spiritual attack and Satan comes after you. And at times he just gets the ball rolling. He just gets in your head enough to get you going crazy. And then he's off to the next person. We'll see this this morning in another section. But there's a point to this that trials produce within us. James says, count it joy as you go through it. Not woohoo, but I'm going to praise you, God, in the midst of this. I don't know what the end result is. And you're allowed to ask the why question. Why, God? Why are you letting this happen? Why is this allowed? But counter that why question with what? What is God teaching me? What is he revealing about his character? What is he showing me in the midst of this? And let's just face it, sometimes it just sucks. It's my new favorite word sometimes with people love. Let's just realize that life sometimes just sucks. Because you go through something, whether it's a diagnosis, whether it's a crash, whether it's a loss of someone or someone close to life can sometimes just suck. And many times we don't need to fix people. We just need to be there and acknowledge, yeah, this sucks. And zip it. But in Romans, it speaks to this as well, that if you were to jump backwards from Hebrews and go into the book of Romans, you find in Romans chapter 4, that as Paul is writing uh, Romans, he's talking about Father Abraham, who was, the fa- who was the patriarch of the Jewish nation. And as he speaks about Abraham, he's saying he's justified by something because Abraham is Old Testament. How did Abraham get to heaven? Abraham got to heaven by faith. His faith that he trusted in God and knew one day, his faith was placed. He didn't know Jesus, but he does know. And so in chapter four, you read in verse 13, it says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are able to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That grafted in part is what he's hitting at. He's saying, look, Abraham was saved and justified not by his works and following the rules. He was justified by his faith in God. Did he follow rules? Absolutely. How do I show love to God? Well, I obey what he's called me to do, but I'm not justified by my works. Justified by faith through grace, and I do the good works that God has prepared before me Because if at the end of the day, I do all these good works, I'm only doing what I'm already supposed to do. Why am I going to get a reward for it? You're not. And so Abraham, he's saying, is justified by faith. This is important. It gets to chapter 5. We'll get there. In verse 20, it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness, It was counted to him as righteousness. The promise given to Abraham was, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to give you a son and an heir. I'm going to take you out of the land of Uar, which is in Iraq, and I'm going to take you all the way to this new place in Canaan called Israel, who I know it's even called Israel yet. And Abraham doesn't see a lick of those promises. In fact, he gets to almost 100, and he's like, where's this son of promise? I'm still without a son, God, and my heir is this other person who's not even blood kin. And God visits him and says, next year, And Sarah laughs. His wife says, I'm 100. There's no way I'm having a kid. Can you imagine? Some of you who are closer there than me, can you imagine? Especially you guys who are there. Can you imagine being a dad of an infant? 
at almost 100. I, I'm 36, and I'm like, whew, whew, 100. That's okay, not uh, beyond the other stuff. And God says, next year. And God promises are fulfilled. And there's a son named Isaac whose name means laughter because Sarah laughed at the idea, the audacity. And it happens. And he says, it's the faith that Abraham trusted. His faith grew. And he didn't see it all develop. Abraham died without everything fulfilled. It was promised. It was not all fulfilled. Which gets us to the next point, which is the tr- where I'm driving at. Romans 5. Therefore, which means because of what was said, because of that faith of Abraham, therefore... Since we have been justified by our faith, you and I, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The good news. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Trials are part of God's design to grow us, to shape us. That it produces within us something that God is saying, look, I'm going to put you through this. Like any ring, usually a gold ring or anything, it's refined by fire. Why? To remove the impurities. Why do we go through trials if we believe in Jesus Christ? Because it removes some of those impurities that we still linger onto us. We're in a sin-filled world. I still wrestle with sin. I'm a pastor. Yes, I fight against it. And I overcome how? By the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. That's how I overcome. Not by my works, but by faith, knowing that when I go through trials and sufferings, some of those are hard trials. Some of those are job. They're all various forms. But they produce within us something that is worth more precious than anything we could obtain here, which is our faith. And it produces within us character and hope Because you're able to then look back on these moments with joy and say, oh, I remember that. And you remember those feelings you had. You remember the downcast and you're like, I'm so glad I'm not there. But I'm so glad because at those moments I was the closest with Jesus or I felt God's hand the closest. And it's all the more meaningful because you have no idea why sometimes you go through things. Sometimes you will never know this side of heaven. Other times, God gives us glimpses and specs to see how we go through things and how that affects this whole other group of people because of what we endured and what we went through. So trials are part of God's design. And if trials do not produce faith, what does? Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Supernaturally, faith is built in us as we hear, understand, and trust in God's word. So if we hold here, we've got James and the fact that trials are part of God's design. If we hold here and jump to Hebrews, we're going to be rapid fire through this point because I want to camp on the last one. But God deals with us as sons or daughters. So trials are part of God's design. Esther and Mordecai went through that in Esther. They went through their trials. It produced within them something. But when we read Hebrews 11, it defines faith in this manner. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's this You can't, I have never seen Jesus, for the record. I've seen paintings people have done. But Jesus said to Thomas, who doubted, one of the disciples said, unless I touch where those nail prints were, unless I see him, I don't don't think I can believe. And Jesus said, he comes, shows Jesus, and Thomas says, I believe. Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. 
And Hebrews defines this in 11 of this is what faith is, the hope for things and not seen. And then it lists this whole rapid fire of all these great men and women of faith. Abraham's mentioned. You have all these people who died without fulfilling the promise that God had given in their lifetime. And he says, therefore, in verse 12, chapter 12, therefore, since we have these great cloud of witnesses, these people, and I would argue these are people from the Bible in Hebrews 11. Who's been in your life who are men and women of faith, who you look to and say, those were great men. Those were great women. Those were great ambassadors. Those had great faith. Because take them into chapter 12. They are that great witness that surrounds you. And Paul says, or the, whoever the authors of Hebrews, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race, meaning your life that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him, that joy concept of James, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of God. He's saying, for the joy set before Jesus, who knew the cost and what it would face, went willingly, joyfully. And he goes further with this. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you and I have to endure. God is treating you as sons or daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In the ancient world, it was like looked at like, how would, why would you not? Spank your children. Why would you not discipline them in some way? It was an anathema, pretty much, which means I can't believe this. You wouldn't do this. And, and the author is writing this in Hebrews to say, look, it is for discipline. And, and what son or what daughter whose father does not do? Who's, he's saying it's kind of a, that whole concept of everybody does this. And just as God, he disciplines us. And discipline is not just spanking. At the end, there's five of us in my household when I grew up. So each of us was unique, and you find out as a parent, each one, each child is unique, and what they respond to is different. It's not a one-size-fits-all. As grandparents and parents, as you know this, you can't force the one side. So for, for instance, and I always pick up my little sister a little bit, my brother, you beat him. You all know those people, right? You beat him. That's the way he responded. Spanks were the best. For me, my dad just had to say, I'm disappointed, Nick, and it would crush me, and it would just break me. My little sister, you sent her to her room to be quiet. And she naturally could not just go quietly to her room. She always added to her punishment because she would stomp her feet. You've seen this. I don't want to go. And it's like, Lizzie, be quiet. But, and she always had to have the last word. But, but, and it always ended up escalating the punishment. But Lizzie loved to be around people. So the worst, best thing you could do, remove her from people. And she would say, I'll be good, I'll be good. No, you're still going to be quiet. My brother, you sent him to his room. He'd love you. He'd be like, this is great. This isn't punishment. And so God knows us then as sons and daughters, and he knows what is going to be best for you and for me and what type of discipline is going to grow our faith, not to harm us, but to prove our faith of worthy. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers, he says, who disciplined us and respect. we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best. But he, meaning God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And this is, this is a good encouragement I hope to give you, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. It does. All of it is. It's never fun. Growth points are not fun, or we wouldn't, we'd all want them all the time. 
And you have to live with the tension. I tell the staff all the time, we live with the tension. We're, we're a growing church. Again, a byproduct of health is we grow in our nursery and our kids are growing and booming. That's awesome. But it also leaves for some other, how do we deal with this? And, and their growth points. So I say we live with the tension. And by that, I mean, we don't solve the problem tomorrow. We can't. But let's pull it out. Let's address it. Let's bring it into the light to start to think on it and process it and, and decide how we're going to go after it. Live with the tension. Bring it into the light. You can't solve everything like that. I wish you could. But sometimes you have to live with some tension because it's, it's part of growing and you learn through that. But later, he says, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And he's saying, look, it doesn't seem fun. It never is. That's why we don't want to keep going through them. And sometimes I wonder, all right, God, you've taken me through some things. What in the world have you got down the road? Right? Some of you have gone through some very hard things in life. And God's not done with you. Until you're dead and in heaven, he's not done with you. And so I wonder sometimes what I've gone through of thinking, all right, God, you've placed me in some quite a bit of pickles at times, and you've shown me your faithfulness, consistency. What in the world are you doing? What have you got planned down the road? So look more to the results, more than the process. The process is never fun. It's like you want to get in shape. I've been trying to get in shape since January, and it's a slow process. Round is a shape for the record, but <laughs> apparently not the shape. So it's a process. How I eat. How often do I go to the gym? How often do I make myself run a little faster on the treadmill instead of going at a coasting speed? It's the process that's never fun, but the results are what you want and what you look for. Many believers, Spurgeon writes, are deeply grieved because they do not at once feel that they have been profited by their afflictions. Well, you do not expect to see apples or plums on a tree which you have planted but a week. Only little children put their seeds into the flower garden and then expect to see them grow into plants within the hour. Is that not true? That as we go through, we just say, oh, it should be there. Oh, I planted the tree. Where's my food? It's, it's not there. My son has just gotten his words better and better. And so now it's like, I want food now. It's like, well, it takes a few minutes to get ready. And he starts throwing fits. I want it now. I want it now. And we are, not the, are we not the same way that when we go through hardship, when we go through trials, I want it to end now. I want it to go away now. I want to just learn and be done. And it's like, you haven't learned it yet. And I promise you, if it goes away and you haven't learned it, it tends to repeat itself later in a different form, different person, same stuff. Or you can learn from it and grow from it so that when it appears again, you know how to deal with it. So we're going to jump into this last part. Remember who is the king. And if you are at Esther still, you haven't jumped around with me, good. Because at Esther 10, it goes into one of my least favorite books of the Bible, but a very good book of the Bible called Job, not Job, Job. And Job comes right after Esther in the chronological things of history. Job was probably written more in the patriarchal period with Abraham, around when he existed. Some believe it could have been him or Moses who wrote the book of Job. We don't really know who wrote it. It could have been Job himself. But we read a little about Job in chapter 1. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. And it goes to explain his possessions, which was a sign of wealth in that period of time. He's got all of these sheep and cattle. He's got donkey. He's got servants. In verse 4, it says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send it and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God. Thus Job did continually. So it tells us who is Job? What is his character? He's a man of God. He follows after God. He wants to make sure he's doing things right. And part of that, God has blessed him richly. He's got 10 kids, seven sons and three daughters. He's got tons of sheep. He is wealthy and he consistently is a man of integrity. He follows after God. Then it gets to the next verse, verse 6. Now there was a day, this is not Job is privy to, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them, which, pause, time out, tells you something. There was a day when the sons of God, meaning the angels, came to present themselves, and Satan came too. How does that work? If Satan's in heaven, how does that? I don't know. But it's there, and there is a reason for it, and he is able to. You read about Satan, he's not a red devil with horns and a pitchfork and a tail. Now he masquerades as an angel of light, meaning he's most likely going to be someone who you would run into and say, I really like him. He's really trustworthy. He's really this. And inside he is evil. And so there's a day that happens that as the angels present and sing, holy, 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 Satan masquerades and comes with them. Then the Lord said to Satan, because he's not, he knows he's there. He sees what's going on. From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Tells you something else. He's not omnipresent, which is what God is. He can see all things, knows all things, omnipotent. Satan says, well, I've been wandering. I've been going this way and that way. I'm keeping my eyes on things, on this planet that you've created, these humans. Notice he doesn't say anything about Job. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Thank you, Jesus. And if you're Job reading this later in life, you're going to be thinking, really, that's how this happened? But he says, have you considered? And Satan already hasn't considered him because he would have said something had he been there. Have you considered him? There is none like him. God's bragging on him. Blameless, upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan's response is always the same where God pulls out something like this. Satan answered him, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put out a hedge around him in his house and all he has on every side? You have blessed him in his hand. Stretch out your hand, touch all that he has. He'll curse you to your face. And God said, behold, all that he has is yours. Only against him, don't stretch out your hand. Go ahead, Satan. You're allowed. Which tells you something else. He had to ask permission before he could do this. God had to allow him to do it, which means God is the king who has the authority. Satan doesn't have that authority. He is a high, he's got high authority, yeah, but he doesn't have God's authority. God is the king, and God allows. And you read the next section, and you read that one servant after another comes to Job and says, oh, your cattle have been stolen by these raiders. Oh, you've lost these, these trade routes. Oh, you've lost these, all of these things. The other servants come, oh, there was a wind. All of your kids have died. In one fell swoop, he loses his entire wealth. He loses all of his children. Verse 20, it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. His response to losing everything. 
Probably a broken heart, I would imagine. He worships. He moans. He shaves his head, a sign of mourning. And he said, naked I come from a mother's womb. Naked shall I leave. The Lord gives. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Did you do that if you were in that same shoes? He worships. And he praises God and he doesn't charge him with wrong. And so in verse chapter 2, it gets better. Again, there was a day. So it rehashes what we've seen. There was a day. The angels are presenting themselves. Satan comes in and God says, where are you coming from? He's already forgotten Job because he says, wandering to and fro. And he doesn't even bring up Job. He has no concern. He doesn't care. He's there to steal and kill and destroy. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? Though you incited me against him, he still doesn't sin. So what is Satan's response? Well, tit for tat, let me go after him. Satan answered in verse 4, The Lord said, skin for skin, all that he has, he will give for life. But stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hands for his life. Again, permission asked, permission granted, only don't kill him. And he lets him go. And so he's afflicted with boils as you read, and he's scratching on a dung pile in the middle of the city, and his Wife, who is, if you read it, you're like, wow, she's a real charmer. She says, curse God and die. And you're like, well, I wouldn't want to be married to her. But think for a minute. She's also lost her kids. She's also lost her wealth. She is also in mourning. She doesn't quite know. She's probably just, again, hurt and in pain. Do people not respond that way when they're hurt and they're in pain? Yes. We give grace. And all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And you read the rest of Job, and you read that his friends come, and they do exactly what I said. They just sit, and they say, yeah, this sucks. And then they start to work with Job. And, and what you have to understand is, Job, this is not a, oh, one week he's here, one week he's here. Then at the end of the story, God shows up, and he says, Job, I'll finally answer. Because Job gets frustrated. He gets angry, if we all would. And he says, God, what, what, what's the hay? Come on, man. And God shows up and says, okay, I'll answer you, but first you answer my question. Where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and set the stars in motion? Where were you at each of these points? And Job's response is what ours would be, which is, I'm going to shut up now because he comes into realization of where does he stand before a holy God? And he's like, I'm good. I'm good right here in this dung pile. Like, I'll live my life here and I'll praise you. And God says, no, I want an answer. And he goes further with it. And Job says, I'm not, no, I know my space. I get it. And at the end of all that, God does restore Job. Job prays for his friends because his friends were wrong when they said, you must have done something. But all of this period of time did not just happen in a week or a month. You're talking years. Years. That over a period of years, he is suffering and working through hardship. And that may be some of you, that you've been in hardship, you've been in years of it. Does it have an end? It does. We don't always know that end. What does God do at the end of that? Well, he restores Job double. I'm still fairly certain he misses his children. And he still misses, but God says, I've seen you. And even in the midst of our hardship, God sees us. And he says, I'm going to put trials in your life and you're going to go through them. But that was what I needed to hear in Job back in 2010 was that though what I went through and I wrestled with, God is the king. And once that clicked into place, it was like, oh, oh okay. I'm going to be okay. Does he allow me to go through? Yeah, then I'm going to learn something through this. But it's what Spurgeon writes here. Trials can prove a wonderful work of God in us. 
He writes, I have looked back to times of trial with a kind of longing, not to have them return, but to feel the strength of God as I have felt it then, to feel the power of faith as I felt it then, to hang upon God's powerful arm as I hung upon it then, and to see God at work as I saw him then. Cling hard, cling fast. That's what Esther teaches us. There was trials and God is faithful and his providence is there and he continues to work out for our benefit. And we get into September, we're going to start in groups ministry. We're going to look at Hebrews actually this fall. But to summarize Esther, it's that there is trials and we are going to go through them. Keep your eyes on the king. And he will provide a way of escape with that temptation. Praise him in the midst of the storm to know that he is with you and walking with you. And it is not wasted. It is to prove that your faith is worthwhile and more precious than silver and gold. And he went for the joy before him dying on a cross to bring you that hope and that faith that it is real and he is with you. And you have no idea this side of heaven. Why I am where I am today is because of 2010 and those people who you will never meet who were able to walk alongside me through a hard period of my life and just say, yeah, life sucks. But to show me my faith is more and it is precious and God is refining. And I don't know what's next and I don't really think like, God, really, what's more? But he says, I will be with you through it. So wherever you're at, may you trust in him and keep your eyes, the hope on him. Let me pray this morning. Lord God, we are grateful to be gathered in your name. To know, Lord, that it's not about us that we are gathered here, but it is about your son, Jesus Christ, that we are gathered. Lord, as we sing songs of praise to you and about you already, as we get ready to go about our week, may we be encouraged in the midst of hardships that we may find ourselves in. That if we're on the other side and looking back, may we, we resonate with that even in the midst of it, Lord, you were still true and faithful through it all. And maybe, Lord, we're in the middle of it, the tail end of it, this, the beginning. May we sing with praises and with joy, knowing, Lord, that you're refining us through this. And maybe, Jesus, we know of somebody who is walking through turbulence right now. And we haven't stepped into the gap or we haven't just walked alongside them. May you place them in our lives. And if they are in our lives, may we have eyes to see them, to just walk with, not to fix them, not to solve their problems, just to walk with them through this period, to encourage them, to bring them with us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you are doing in our own lives. May you continue to grow us and shape us as a church to honor you and to impact the community that you've called us to. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.